wildlife and its habitat cannot speak. So we must. And we will. You're listening to the Conservation Federation of Missouri podcast. Here's Executive Director Brandon Butler. Welcome to Conservation Federation Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Butler. Today, I'm joined by good friend and CFM affiliate leader, Mike Powell with the Greenbelt Land Trust. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mike, we got to start today on somewhat of a somber note. We've just lost an absolute legend of conservation and a previous podcast guest, Mr. Bill Crawford, who had an unbelievable life, made it to 99 years old. Joel Vant said, no one lives forever but I thought Bill had as good of a chance as anyone. And for those of you that are listening to this podcast or maybe new to the CFM podcast, you might want to go back and listen to the episode with Bill. There'll never be another man like him. He's truly a legend. He was at the founding meeting of CFM as a 17 year old in 1935 and really was instrumental in this conservation model we have here in Missouri. He will be sorely missed But I think it's fitting that we're talking about land protections today when a man as great as him left us a legacy in the natural areas and the creation of the Prairie Foundation and all his work over an incredible lifetime for conservation. Oh, he was a titan of conservation everywhere, not just in Missouri, but we were lucky to have have a man like him here for as long as we did. Uh, And selfishly, I'm just so proud that I got to know him. Yeah, I'm jealous. I, I never met him face to face. Well, moving on. I'm excited about this podcast because I've got a lot to learn. Talking about land trusts is something that I hear frequently, but I truly don't know that much about. And now being a landowner with a piece of property that I hope to see conserved for future generations long after I'm gone, I'm interested in learning exactly what the Greenbelt Land Trust does, how land trusts work, and what I can do as an individual landowner to protect my place. Well, that sounds great. I'd be happy to fill you in. Let's get started. All right. (laughs) So as a land trust, There's often some confusion because a lot of times cities will have land trusts that are geared to addressing affordable housing and things. So the city of Columbia has one, and that's not what we do. It's it's a worthwhile goal, but, but we're a conservation organization. And so what we do is we work with private and public landowners to ensure that agricultural and natural areas in Missouri, and specifically in mid Missouri, are protected for perpetuity. And there are several different ways we do that. Basically, what we try to do is if somebody comes to us and says, hey, I've got 80 acres of woods or I've got 120 acres of farmland, we'll talk to them, see what your plans are, put you in touch with the proper people if it's not us and get you connected. But the big two things we do are we own a couple nature preserves, and that's fairly straightforward that we own some land and we manage it for habitat value. But the biggest thing and probably what you'd be most interested in hearing about are are called conservation easements. And so a conservation easement is a mechanism by which a property remains in private ownership. So you can, it's not open for public access. You can, you can fence it, you can sell it, you can give it to your kids, but it remains all in one piece and undeveloped forever. And so that, that does bind you, but it also, if, if you sell it, if you give it away, everybody who owns that property from now until the end of civilized life as we know it is is also bound by those restrictions. And so the woods stay woods, the farms stay farms forever. And I've actually heard that that's pretty hard to reverse. I've actually heard it takes an act of Congress to reverse a easement. Congress can do it. There are a couple other ways it can happen. Basically, the first way is a conservation easement is an exception to what's called the rule against perpetuities, which is a ridiculously complicated thing that lawyers often don't understand. 
But the gist of it is that you're not normally allowed to do something that affects, that binds the future landowners. You can do whatever you want with the land while you own it, but once you sell it, you lose all your, all your control. This is an exception to that. And so there has to be a reason for that exception. And so in this case, you're identifying what's called a conservation value. So it can't just be a big open field with invasive honeysuckle everywhere. It's got to have important habitat for a species of concern. It's got to protect riparian areas, scenic views, key soils, any of a number of things. And so if by some act, the conservation value goes away, my favorite example is if there, you know, a meteor hits your farm and reduces it to an irradiated wasteland, then a court can say, you know, this conservation easement doesn't really do anything anymore. It's not protecting anything of value. So we can, we can cancel it. The only other possibility is eminent domain. The government can come in and say, we need this land for the public good and cut out all or part of the conservation easement and extinguish it. They're required to pay a compensation for that, but but it does trump a conservation easement. So when you decide to put an easement on your property, you need to be sure it's something you want to do. Absolutely. Once that paper's signed and recorded with the county, it's real, real hard to come back. Talk to your lawyer, talk to your accountant, talk to your kids, talk to everybody you need to talk to. Get your ducks in a row and make sure this is what you want to do, because once it's done, it's done. All right. So let's start at the beginning. I come to you. I say, look, I've got 40 acres of property and I want to make sure this land's protected. How does the ball start rolling? The first thing we'll do is I'll usually come out to the property and we'll walk around. We'll look at it. We'll chat about what are your goals? What's your intention with the property? Just try to get a feel for, is this a good fit? And get a sense of what the property looks like, what the value of the property is and explain to you what it would look like. Once we agree to it, we decide we're going to move forward with this. It actually works a lot like a normal real estate acquisition. We do title work, nail down any interests, anything that divides up the property in any way. And we'll do a whole, just a whole bunch of due diligence, including what's called a baseline documentation report, which is a specialized sort of survey where I'm going to come out and walk around and take about a, a million pictures and really try to capture this is what the property looked like on the day we signed the conservation easement. And then in future years, if something changes and it's a violation of the easement, we can come back and say, yes, this was this is different. Here's what it looked like. That picture is tied to geographic coordinates. And so we can say, yeah, I was standing right here looking this direction. And it looked like this. And suddenly five years later, you stand there and look that direction. There's a McDonald's and that's a problem. So we get all that lined out. We'll negotiate the terms of the easement. We adapt the document. They're complicated. They're 20, 30 page documents with a bunch of different provisions that are designed to protect the property, protect the value of the property. We'll hash all that out and make sure that everybody, Greenbelt, landowner, any concerned parties, know everything about what's going on, what's going into this thing. And once we have all that lined out, we do a closing. There are closing costs just like a, when you buy a house or buy a piece of land and goes off, gets recorded with the county recording office, and, and there it is. So it actually costs the landowner money to do It does. This? I guess I was under the impression that there was some fiscal incentives. There are. The most significant one is what's called the conservation tax incentive, and it's a federal income tax deduction. And so it basically works in a similar way to if you just write a check to to CFM, to Greenbelt, you get a charitable deduction for that, but it's boosted. So normally you can deduct with a charitable deduction, you can deduct up to 30% of your income and you have six years to use the value. So if you, you can split it up, but you won't, but you, if you haven't used it by six years out, the rest of the value goes away. On a conservation easement, you can deduct up to 50% of your income, unless you're a farmer. And if you're a farmer, you can deduct all of your income and you've got 16 years to deduct the value. And so basically what will happen is there will be a specialized appraisal done. The appraiser will look at the easement 
and figure out here's the value of the property as is unencumbered and here's the value of the property with the easement on it. So it'll go down somewhat in value because you're losing development rights, you're losing subdivision rights and whatever other restrictions are built into the, into the easement and the difference. So if the property's worth just for nice, easy math, because math is hard for me. <laughs> you're a lawyer, right? Yeah. yeah. So hopefully nobody hold that against me on the you know, listeners out there. But so if it's 100, worth $100,000 without an easement, $80,000 with the easement, you get a deduction of $20,000. That's not too hard. Most lawyers I know just add 400 plus 400 plus 400. <laughs> yeah. That's a skill I haven't developed so much in the nonprofit sector. You know, <laughs> there aren't many nonprofits paying 400 an hour. Yeah. I haven't found one yet either. Maybe someday. But <laughs> <laughs> So you come out and you check out the land. You decide that, okay, it, it's something that we would like to see protected. And the landowner agrees to the terms. What happens from that point forward? It's like a closing. You're you're not selling the entire ownership of the land, but you're giving a part at what's called a non-possessory interest in the land. So that means we can't hold it. We don't own it, but we have the right to enforce the easement against the owner and or trespassers on the land. And, and can these easements be designed somewhat specifically for each landowner? I know you said you can't put a McDonald's on it, but what if I wanted to build another cabin or a pole barn? Absolutely. It's a really flexible tool. We work really hard to tailor the document to what the property looks like, what good management of the property would look like in the future. And usually what we'll do is we'll designate what are called building envelopes. We'll say, here's a two acre section of the property and you can build a house there. Often there's already a house there. And so you just draw the square around it and you can either maintain or maintain or replace. And then you can draw elsewhere, you know, but that's all stuff you need to, you have to negotiate ahead of time. You can get into trouble with that tax deduction, which is a, a handy thing to have. You can get into trouble with the IRS if you don't define things clearly enough. Because if they see too much wiggle room, they see an opportunity to to subvert the conservation values. We have properties, and it depends, again, it depends entirely on the property. You probably wouldn't allow three houses on a five-acre property. But. That's another question I was going to get to. Is there a minimum size of property you'll accept? Is there a maximum size? What kind of properties are you looking for? There's not a hard line. It depends entirely on context and the characteristics of the property. We have the smallest property we can serve is Spring Valley Nature Preserve. It is in the city limits of Columbia. It's just a little nature park on a creek in a close to downtown Columbia where the kids can go play in the creek. And it's about four tenths of an acre. It's it's tiny. It's basically just an urban house lot, but instead of a house, it's a it's nature. Our biggest property at the other end of the spectrum is 381 acres in Monotau County of Hunting Land. It's a longtime conservationist. He hunts deer. He hunts ducks. He's and he's really stewarded the land well. And that's a big, big swath of land. So there aren't hard line. It's got to be at least five acres or, you know, or at least 100 or whatever. It has to be big enough that protecting it protects the value. If the goal is to protect water quality and you're protecting a, a five foot strip along the side of a creek, it's probably not enough. You're not getting enough conservation value to justify the thing. But especially when you're talking in an urban context, a lot of times open space stuff is small. I mean, there's just not big swaths of land in, in cities. So, And we believe strongly that people in urban areas need, need access to, to trees and, and grass and, and water just as much as everybody else does. Oh, absolutely. Urban areas sometimes are overlooked by people in rural parts of the state. They think, well, look, I have all these trees and opportunities right outside of my door. And you hear arguments once in a while against the Department of Conservation spending money on an urban nature center. And it, it's just mind-blowing to me that anyone could think that. I mean, here you have the major populations of the state 
And they're not as fortunate as some of us that can just walk right out our back door and go for a hike or fishing. So investing in those those resources in those areas and making sure that uh, even though somebody may live in a city, there's opportunities to enjoy nature close by. I think that's really important and appreciate the work you do. Absolutely. We work a lot with the Department of Conservation. and In fact, the land trust world is a much bigger deal in a lot of other parts of the country than it is in Missouri. And I went to a conference in Rhode Island several years ago. And in the state of Rhode Island, and you know, we have counties in Missouri that are the size of the state of Rhode Island. There are 42 land trusts in Missouri, depending on where you draw the line of this is how many staff members we have, this, you know, or volunteer there, there certainly are no more than 10. Mm-hmm. And with staff, I think there are three that have, have at least part one part-time staff member. So most places there are more, but but part of the reason for that is the Department of Conservation has done such a good job for so long that there hasn't been the need that there is a lot of other places. But Unfortunately, though, the department's work could be overturned. I mean, we see legislation filed each year. Sadly, we're again seeing legislation filed this year by Senator Munzlinger to sunset the conservation sales tax and erode the authority of the commission by doubling its size and regionalizing it. So so people who wake up every day today and, and go utilize a conservation area or drive past a conservation area and foolishly think that that'll be there forever, sadly are mistaken. That conservation area is dependent upon the financial resources being available to maintain that property. And there there is nothing constitutionally that, that would stop those lands from being sold at some point down the line. And we've seen it with state parks lately. The open comment period is going on right now. If you haven't left your comment on most state parks, make sure you go on there and do that. Make your voice heard about the preservation of these properties for future generations. But what you're saying with these conservation easements is, is they are locked in. Yeah. Once it's it's done, it's done. But I just I've been reading a collection of essays by Wallace Stegner. My friend my friend Hank gave it to me a few months ago. And I just yesterday read a really good quote and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the text in front of me. But it was basically conservation is not a fact. Conservation is a job. And the point is even conservation easement is a permanent legal thing, but it does require annual monitoring. It requires enforcement. And I think it's important that everybody statewide, and not just about Greenbelt, but people who value open space, people who have been to the Gorman Center in Kansas City or Echo Bluff State Park or any of these places and really gotten something out of them to remember. They're there now, but you can't take that for granted. So now I'm thinking about what I just said constitutionally. I don't want to confuse people. The Department of Conservation absolutely has the constitutional authority to manage these lands. What I'm saying is that can be reversed. If a vote was ever you know, taken and, and the people of Missouri chose to reverse that, it could be reversed. And, and then those lands could potentially be sold, which led me to also think, what if all of the conservation areas had a conservation easement on them? Or does that already, is that already the case? Uh, it's not the case. In most situations, the conservation department doesn't want to take on the legal liability that comes along with the conservation easement. They don't get the tax benefits, obviously, because they're the government. And the view is essentially that they need to maintain their options because if at some point that tax sales tax that supports them goes away, funding gets tight, they need the flexibility to, to make management decisions and make sure that they're doing the best they can to protect their lands. And that may come into conflict with permanent protections of a conservation easement. 
there are exceptions. There, there are public lands protected by easement. I don't know if there are any in in Missouri, but that does happen other places. And isn't it scary to think that we can someday be without the conservation sales tax? That something that is so critical to making our state the special natural resource destination that it is for people from all over the world who come here to live and work and visit and recreate the options that we have, whether it be trails or hunting or fishing, camping on these public lands and how anyone would want to erode what we have is just simply mind boggling. Well, we're awfully lucky in this state. I lived in Northwest Ohio for a while and we spent a fair amount of time in Ann Arbor, which is a great city. And Michigan is a really cool state. There's a lot of neat stuff going on there. And and Love Michigan. Southeast Michigan, the Ann Arbor area especially, has this reputation as being an outdoor destination, an outdoor mecca. And, and I, I tell people all the time, the only difference between mid-Missouri and the Ann Arbor area is marketing. We've got every bit as much natural beauty. We don't have skiing. So if you're a skier, you know, it's it's not the place to be. But we've got floats. We've got hikes. We've got incredible geological features we're really lucky in this part of the state and the state at large. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a quarter Michigan, Michigander. My grandma was from Battle Creek and we spent a lot of time vacationing in Michigan when I was young. And one of those great ski destinations is Gaylord and they're a Federation destination and appreciate their support and encourage people to check it out. But absolutely, Michigan's a great place to go visit and they do have an unbelievable marketing campaign called Pure Michigan. You would think that Missouri would maybe replicate that and, and try to drive people here to hunt and fish. But unfortunately, we've seen a, a $3 million cut this year in tourism dollars. You know, that's kind of a travesty when you consider the fact that tourism is the second largest economic driver in our state, and we have so much to offer. And then when you look at the population bases of the country, draw a circle around Missouri and everything within an eight-hour drive. And you consider the fact that you have, you know, Chicago, Indianapolis, Louisville, Little Rock. I mean, it's just huge, huge amount of population that should be being marketed to to drive people here to stimulate rural economies, places like Eminence and Salem and all these great, great opportunities for people to come from far away and experience our natural resources. But but somehow we don't, you know, we don't seem to spend the money there. We have a Department of Natural Resources now that has changed their mission statement to being the, the supporter and driver of agriculture, industry, and business. Perhaps they should consider some of those businesses as, as rural recreation spots. Well, one of the things that's been happening the last couple of years that I'm really excited about is the outdoor industry has really realized what a juggernaut it can be. And there's really been an effort to say this is the amount of money that we bring into. It's mostly happened out West. You know, uh, there these companies like Patagonia and, and things that have said, you know, we bring in X billion dollars to Utah every year. And every other business sector does that. And for whatever reason, a lot of these outdoor companies haven't done a good job. But people want to live near these opportunities. People want to be able to hop in their car in their driveway and drive half an hour and put a canoe in and float through the woods on a, on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, now you just opened up another topic for us to discuss, which is the rollback of the monuments that have happened here in the last couple of weeks. You've lost 2 million acres of protection on lands. And thankfully, Patagonia and other companies are starting to stand up. Patagonia is in an open war of words with our government, which is unbelievable that the government is fighting back against a, a corporation like that while promoting corporations that seek to do harm to those lands. But the fact of the matter is, is Patagonia and a few other companies led a resistance and we've now seen outdoor retailer pulled from Salt Lake City. And this is the largest 
trade show for outdoor sports equipment outside of hunting and fishing. So camping, backpacking, hiking, paddling. Every year they are in Salt Lake City twice. It's over a $30 million economic stimulus to that city, which has now been pulled out and will be moving to Denver. So when you start affecting the bottom line of the communities, these legislators are responsible for, but you talk about Orrin Hatch and, and Rob Bishop and the elected officials of Utah that are just so, so motivated to strip protections from public lands and have the federal lands transferred back to state so they can be sold off to the highest bidder. And statistics show that it's not the people of Utah that support this. I mean, it's a minority of wealthy folks that don't think you and I should have opportunities to be on these properties. And, and the resistance is happening, though. Yeah. One of the things that when you're talking about conservation, a lot of times people think about planting trees or, or aiding habitat and restoring forests and, and wetlands and things of that sort. But it takes a long time to regrow a healthy natural woodland or a healthy natural wetland. But you can do it over decades or centuries. The one thing they're not making any more of is land. And when you start talking about taking land out of protected status, you start talking about developing land that, that was previously protected. Once it's developed, it, it's almost impossible to bring it back. And you know, when you start talking about someplace like Bears Ears where there's millions of acres being pulled out of protected status with enormous value culturally, naturally, it's a shame because if something happens there that you can't pull that out of a hat, you can't manufacture that in a factory. I'm always quick to admit that I'm, I'm a realist in the sense that I know I drive a truck to work every day. And that truck is burning fossil fuels to get me from point A to point B. And I would much rather burn American oil than Middle Eastern or any other national economies product. I want to support America. I want to support America jobs. But the fact of the matter remains that we don't need to be drilling or mining in our most pristine natural resource areas. Absolutely. We hear a lot about fiscal conservatism, fiscal responsibility. And, and in theory, what that means is you're not spending more money than you're taking out. And I think we, we as, a, as a country, and maybe even I'll go so broad as to say as a species, have a long history of running a natural resources deficit. We're, we're spending a lot more resources than, we're, than are being produced. And I'm with you. My car doesn't get especially good mileage. And I burn gas and my house is heated with natural gas and I have electricity generated at coal power plants. And, but we can do better. We can be more efficient. We can start nudging that, that balance back toward, toward the black. Right, right. I, I just think it's a, a common sense issue. Well, let's, let's change this topic and get back to mid-Missouri. And, and tell me a little bit more specifically about Greenbelt and, and the geography that you cover. So Greenbelt was founded in the city of Columbia in 1993, and it was originally called the Greenbelt Coalition. And so what the Greenbelt Coalition was founded to do was to encourage the population of Columbia to develop a network of protected space around Columbia. And the Greenbelt idea is supposed to put a geographic limit on on development, and reality is the development just sort of skips the Greenbelt. But but it's a worthwhile thing to do. And so that that idea was run with for a while and kind of metamorphosed into what is now the, the outstanding system of trails that's owned and, and maintained by the City Parks Department in Columbia continues to be developed. There, there are plans to put in a 30-mile loop trail so you could hop on your bike and ride the, the full circumference of the city of Columbia or run a marathon or whatever, whatever sort of self-flagellation you're into. So when the city said, yeah, we agree with that, and the, the Parks Department really started running with it, it was kind of like, 
well, what do we do now? We've, we've more or less accomplished our goal. So how do we, how do we progress from here? And so what they did was just about that time were approached by the nature conservancy who owned about 60 acres of land just South of campus in the, in Columbia, kind of between Cape and park and Mizzou arena and nature conservancy had managed it for 30 or so years. And it was small. The nature conservancy is a big national organization. They weren't able to give it the attention it needed. And they said, would you be interested? Would you be interested in taking on this property? And the Greenbelt Board met and deliberated and decided, yes, we're going we're gonna to do that. And in doing that, we're going to become a land trust. And so that happened 1997-98 range. And that sort of started the ball rolling. And so now we're a, we fully transitioned. We're a conservation land trust serving Boone County and the seven surrounding counties officially. But we also, because of the lack of, of widespread land conservation land trusts in Missouri, we will take opportunities as they arrive outside the service area too. So what's the makeup of the Greenbelt Land Trust other than the properties that you work with? Volunteers, staff, how do you guys exist? We're a volunteer-based organization. We do have I'm I'm on staff. I'm a full-time executive director for the organization, but we are otherwise I have an an excellent board that has invested a ton of time and expertise in the organization over the decades it's existed. And we also do a lot of volunteer work days. We get out on our properties and on, on public properties regularly, clearing invasive species, improving the quality of habitat. And we're primarily funded on a donation basis. We do get some grant funding from a, from a couple places, the city. We've gotten some money from the department in the past. But primarily what keeps us running, what enables us to do what we do are, are donations from private citizens. So we have a, a healthy membership base in the area. So when you say you do work on the public lands, do you do you ever work on the private lands that have easements on them as well? Do Absolutely. volunteers come out and work on those? Yeah, just here, November 11th, we got out with about 20 folks on one of our conservation easement properties. It's along Hominy Branch Creek in Columbia. It's just a beautiful floodplain. There's a nice house on it. There's a wonderful couple that live there that really steward are stewards of the land. But it's about seven acres, and before they bought it was more or less the large portion of it was overrun with bush honeysuckle and lespedeza and all sorts of some nasty invasive species. And and so they've asked us to to help them out. You know, there's only so much bush honeysuckle that a that a person can pull in a day. So on November 11th, for the second year in a row, we went out there for a day and. And spent, oh, I guess we were out there for about two and a half, three hours with 20 people killing honeysuckle and right along the trail, right along the creek, because that it's not public land, but it has a public benefit. We want to make sure that we're doing our best to ensure that that public benefit is maximized. Do you partner with other land trusts on projects often? Land trusts tend to have a, a service area, and the other large land trust in the state is the Ozark Regional Land Trust, which is also a great organization. And and our service areas overlap just the tiniest bit. They basically catch the very southern edge of ours. And essentially, we have a, I know the staff at, at Ozark real well, and we have sort of an unofficial understanding that if something lands on their desk that's in our service area, then they put send the landowner up the road to us and if and vice versa. So if I hear from somebody who's got, got some property down south who's interested in conservation, then I give them, a, give them Peggy's business card. And, well, I, m- I might have an opportunity for you. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Katie Land Trust. Yeah. Do you know Dan Burkhart? 
I, I know him by reputation. I don't know him personally. And what a reputation that man has. I mean, he's just truly one of the great guys out there. I just absolutely love Dan. Quick background on, on Dan. He, he was an early employee at Edward Jones. I, he told me once the number. It's in the 150s. You know, and you're talking an organization now that has 10,000 employees. So he was a, a personal friend of Ted and Pat. He's invested emotionally in the Katy Trail, the protection of the Katy Trail and the advancement of the towns along the Katy Trail. He's put out some books recently. He has a, a, an organization called Magnificent Missouri. Oh, yeah. Uh, his wife, Connie, is very involved along with him. Beautiful property in Marthasville right on, on the Katy Trail. Just one of those guys that seems like everything he touches turns to gold. And it, it's because of the combination of of intelligence and sweat equity that he puts into everything. But he's recently approached CFM about working on a, a series of projects along the Katy Trail to remove bush honeysuckle and to go into these small communities and do invasive species awareness workshops. So educate people about what bush honeysuckle is, along with some other invasive species plants and then educate them about why we need to get rid of it and how we get rid of it and then try to organize some some volunteer work groups. He really focuses on that first or last, I guess, depending which direction you're coming from, 100 miles of the right. Missouri River Valley. So everything in that Herman, Washington, kind of almost to Jeff City uh, stretch. But I don't see any reason why if we started that program along that section of the Katy Trail, we couldn't work with you guys to extend it through Boone County and Howard County as well. So Absolutely. Bringing people together, partnerships. That's yep. what we do at CFM. That's what it's all about. So I, you know, I look forward to this, you know, as well as I do, being an executive director of a conservation organization, you wish you could actually spend more time outside doing <laughs> conservation work. So to be able to go out and throw some gloves on and, and pull bush honeysuckle off the Katy Trail and, and, and try to keep, Katy Trail, which is a, a crown jewel of, of oh, our what state. A, what an incredible resource it is. As naturally sound as possible. I think that'd be a, a good opportunity. And I would love to, to try to bring you and Dan together on this project. That, that sounds great. I'd love to love to sit down with both of you. That would be wonderful. So are there any projects like that that you've got going here in the mid-Missouri region? We're always looking for opportunities to address invasive species issues and any conservation opportunities in general. We work real closely with a, a couple watershed groups in in the Boone County area. The Hinkson Collaborative Adaptive Management Process has been ongoing for a while. Riparian restoration is one of the things that has really come out of that. That's a ball that they're really trying to run with. And so we're involved there. We're really trying to make sure we're trying to make sure something productive comes of that. Uh, we're also involved with the Bonfem watershed group. And both of these are watersheds that eventually land in the Missouri River. And the really the, the tough thing about honeysuckle in particular, but invasive species generally, is that they don't really care about what the property boundaries are. They're not out there with GPS finding their finding the pins and making sure they don't trespass. You know, birds eat the berries and spread the seeds around. And so if we're going to address this stuff effectively, we have to be doing it collaboratively. And so we're really trying to encourage, you know, obviously Department of Conservation does a lot of invasive management. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does does good work in managing invasive species. The city of Columbia has a wild yards program that they're just starting where they're certifying properties that have been cleared of invasive species and managed for, for native habitat benefit. And 
those are all good things, but we need to be doing more. So there's always an opportunity to, to grow that. You just said something that kind of sparked a, a memory in me, and that's in, in fighting for water protections. And I've heard it said by a number of politicians that we already protect the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, trying to explain to them that the Missouri and Mississippi rivers are actually just made up of a lot of smaller watersheds. It seems like it would be pretty easy to understand, but I think it's harder for some to grasp than one might think. Well, it's easy to think you look at a river or any body of water and it looks like sort of a discrete thing. You know, you can say, well, there's the edge of the water. So that's the end of the river. That's the end of the lake. But the reality is that land and water are not separate entities. What we do on land very, very much affects what's happening in the water. And, and I think people forget that. And so it's easy to think, well, I'm I live 30 miles from the from the Missouri River. It doesn't matter whether I what what I'm doing, what I whether I'm paving over all of my my permeable land or dumping whatever in the in the storm drain, but the reality is is that everything is downstream. It's all going to land in the water at some point. And I have a friend and colleague at, at an organization called Missouri River Relief and they're very concerned with water quality in in the Missouri River and its tributaries and and Jeff and I have talked at length about the struggle with making people understand, you know, people think I care about the river. So I want to see the, that the river, the water is protected. But you do that by improving land. You do, do that by protecting forests, by protecting wetlands. And there's really no distinction between land and water. It's yeah, all Jeff, interconnected. Jeff, Jeff Barrow, who you're talking about, he's such a great guy and it's such a great organization. I love going to the wild and scenic film festival every year. Oh, yeah. We had our Spence Turner film there in Columbia at the Blue Note. And uh, just love what those guys do. I love the culture and kind of the eclectic nature of the crew. And I just talked to Joe the other day from River Relief about potentially adding some river cruises to the CFM convention. So River Relief could bring down some boats and during convention, if you want to get out and, and see the river and, and, and leave the work environment of resource yeah. committees for a little while, you can go out and take a River Relief cruise on the Missouri. And I think we'll institute that in 2019. That sounds like a great thing. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to that when I, when I'm get a little break from the resource committees and yeah, get outside. That's an organization like we're talking about. They're, they're out there, you know, they're not sitting behind desks too much. No, they're, they're out there pulling refrigerators out of the creek. <laughs> yeah. They're getting muddy every day. So I'm kind of envious. Like, yeah. What a, what a cool organization and stream teams as well. You know, you oh, take yeah. stream teams all the way back to the CFM. It was founded in our our upstairs uh, office space and the early, early pioneers of that organization and, and what it's grown into to have over 5,000 stream teams in Missouri. And if anybody's not aware of what stream teams are, you know, just Google it or look it up. It's completely easy to, to form a stream team. It's almost like the adopt a highway where you select a section of river, create a stream team and, and go out and pick up trash. And at CFM, we have a CLC stream team and it's been on the current river the last couple of years. I think we're going to move it this year because thankfully there's just not that much trash to be picked up on the current river. It was fun to watch these students basically fighting over a can, you know, who could race to the can first and pick it up. But sadly, you go on other stretches of river in more urbanized area and there's no shortage of trash that can be picked up. Oh yeah. You find out when you start getting out and, and pulling, pulling trash and, and detritus out of, out of the, the creek beds how short a distance it really is. I was out on our, our Hinkson Valley Nature Preserve here recently with another colleague, Lynn Hooper, who who does water quality stuff for the for Boone County. 
and we were out walking around and, and we spied this bright blue thing that was sticking out of the mud. It was right after the big, the big gully washer rainstorm, the last one this summer. And we climbed, so we climbed down there and we're getting, you know, getting our nice clean clothes all muddy and, and it's a Walmart shopping cart. And I thought, what on earth is a Walmart shopping cart doing in, in the creek between Greenbelt and city and university land, you know, several hundred acres of protected riparian corridor. And then I thought, if the river was a road, you're three quarters of a mile from the Walmart parking lot there at, at 63 and Broadway. And it clearly, somebody had dumped it at the side of the parking lot and it got picked up in the rainstorm and landed in the creek. And and what do you know? There it is. And so you really you really get a sense of, the interconnectedness of all this, that there's not a distinction between being good stewards of the land and being good stewards of the water. Yeah. My place down in Shannon County, it's unbelievable what shows up after a flood. My neighbor's outhouse floated away about a mile down the Creek and we had to go with straps and a, a trailer to bring it back. Uh, it's alarming what our, our rivers end up having in them at times. Absolutely. I'm glad that there are so many great organizations doing doing conservation work in and around the Missouri River and and every other body of water in this state. Well, that's true. You know, that's one area that we're definitely blessed. We have so many different conservation organizations in this state. At times, it can almost seem overwhelming trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out how many there are and who does what. At CFM, what some people may not realize is that we we really are an organization of organizations. Now we have well over 5,000 individual members, but we've We've closed in on a hundred affiliated organizations, which I'm very proud that Greenbelt is one of and River Relief as well. But it's so diverse when you consider the fact that it's hunters and fishermen partnering with land conservationists and air and water conservationists, agriculture groups. And, and that's not even to include our business alliance, which is another 75 or so corporations and organizations that belong as corporate members. So. When you have individuals, organizations, and corporations all coming together to work on conservation issues as diverse as landscape protection like you're doing and, and hunting and trapping and fishing and birds and water, it really is a, an amazing process of collaboration. Yeah, and we all serve different purposes and when we're better served by rather than each of us individually trying to do everything, if we work together, we can accomplish a lot more than we ever could working separately. And while we work on those specific interests, I think it is important, though, to remind people that two things here in Missouri really set us apart, and that's the constitutional authority of the department and the way it was set up in 1935 by the Conservation Federation to have four commissioners representing Missouri as a whole. It's a bipartisan commission and the dedicated funding that came later in, in 1976. So I get into a lot of small group discussions and workshops where people throw out different ideas as to what is the most important thing for us to, to work on and maintain. And and while you may say it's land trusts and Mike Allen at the Turkey Federation could say it's turkeys and Dan Vogue at Whitetails Unlimited would say whitetail deer, I'll sit here and say that the two most important things that everybody has to be concerned with and vigilant about, no matter what your specific interest is, is the dedicated funding from the conservation sales tax and the authority of the department to regulate our forest, fish, and wildlife scientifically. Without those two things, in the broad overview, all of our specific interests would be in detriment. Absolutely. Everything that the Conservation Department does as a result of, of that funding and that independence from, from partisan politics has a cascade effect that goes to support everything every other conservation organization is doing in the state. 
we work really closely with the department. We would not be in a, nearly as an effective organization as we are without the input of, of individuals from the Department of Conservation. We better back off the love fest just a little bit <laughs> and, and, and make a statement that our Department of Conservation isn't perfect. No state agency, no government body is. Absolutely. But boy, I wouldn't trade them for another one. No, I, I have worked in other states and, and there are other states that do different things, individual things better than, than we do here. There's always an opportunity to learn from our colleagues elsewhere, but but on the whole, it's hard to hard to imagine any any state that does conservation generally as well as we do. It is. So I was in the executive office of the Indiana Department of Natural Resources for a couple of years working in the, the Mitch Daniels administration. Absolutely loved the job. I worked in constituent services and communications as a writer for the magazine. But it was different. And my office, I was in the executive office. I got to see how the soup was made. I saw a rule happen in Indiana in the last couple of years that... It's a great example of how things are different. And that was allowing centerfire rifles into the deer season. The Department of Natural Resources looked at that as an option. Now, consider in Indiana, you're talking half the land of Missouri and, right. and quite a few more people. So you got a much, much more populated state. And some people would say that, that rifles are dangerous in that kind of a state because People are living so close together and rifle bullets travel so much further. The department looked at that. They took public comment. They did whatever they do to come up with decisions. And they decided that rifles weren't right for Indiana based on how the people felt. Well, the legislature just went ahead and overrode that. And you can question why they did that. I, I and we all have our conspiracy theories. But, sure. But that's just one example of a state agency and a, a public comment period coming up with one suggestion and the legislature, motivated by something, said, no, we're just going to go ahead and do it this way. Yeah. And that, that can spill down into everything from air and water and soil protection to forestry practices to wildlife and fish management. So we're truly blessed. And for those that have never lived or worked in another state and never had to see what it's like to suffer through politically motivated regulations, you should count your blessings to be a Missourian. Absolutely. And I think it's a it's a testament to you in a you know, Missouri is in basically every possible way a border state. You know, we, we lie along ecological boundaries, we lie you know, we lie along socioeconomic boundaries, you know, the east west divide runs right through the middle of the state cultural just every every way you can think of we get we get both ends of the spectrum and and I think it's a real testament one to the value of conservation and the and the belief of our our citizens in conservation and two to the great work that department and that CFM does that in a year that certainly the most contentious political year I can remember 80% of Missourians stood up and said we believe in soil and water and and state parks and they said that in every county in the state I mean, there there was nothing else on the ballot that was even approaching that level of, of unanimity. And that, that really says something about, about what our state believes in. That was inspiring. And I've said it on here before. I mean, that's truly a highlight of my career so far, being able to work on that initiative to renew the park, soil, and water sales tax, just because it was great to see what we can accomplish as citizens when we work together, when we, we don't squabble over just minute details and we worry about the big picture. You know, the agriculture community was right there with the conservation community and the environmental community. Everybody had something to gain from this. I mean, not only clean water and healthy soil, but 
incredible state parks for families all across the state to recreate in. One thing I am scared of, though, I am scared that if, and we certainly hope it doesn't happen, but if the conservation sales tax was ever put on the ballot to be sunset, I would be afraid that people would take for granted that it would pass because because the park soil and water sales tax passed so easily. There would be organized opposition to the conservation sales tax. All those partners sitting around that table would not be at the same table for the conservation sales tax because they don't see the same economic benefit out of those soil and water conservation districts. So I want to make sure people are aware that you're not talking apples to apples. Absolutely. I've said several times while we were sitting here talking and, and earlier that you can't just say, boy, Missouri is a great place for conservation. Boy, I can, you know, I can go out and between here and Columbia, there are also, you know, I don't even know how many thousand, eight, thousands of acres of protected land where you can go out and hike and, and fish and wade and swim and do whatever whatever you like and think, well, that's, that's protected. That's done people. That's going to be there forever. The reality is that all stewardship requires constant investment and that, that extends to land management, but that also extends to, to social management, to, to the maintenance of this ideal of, of conservation that has been, has made Missouri such a great place to live. And if people don't continue investing, don't continue advocating for, for conservation, then we, you know, we may lose some of these wonderful things. And that would be a real shame. Well, Mike, I'm I'm really glad you came in and sat down with me today. I think I've learned a lot about conservation easements and, and land trusts. I definitely want to get you together with Dan and, and see if we can extend this program that we're creating along the Katy Trail into your neck of the woods. And I definitely want to talk to you more about putting my own land into a land trust or a conservation easement. I, I'm definitely outside of your window being down in the Timber, Missouri yeah, area yeah. In, in good old Shannon County. But it is something that I, I want to make sure I do. And I'm glad that I learned today that it's okay that I've built a house on the land, that there's allowments for me to maybe put up a barn in the future, but also protecting this piece of property to know that it'll look the same when my great-grandchildren are running around on it someday. Absolutely. I'll be be glad to, to work with you on that. And and I appreciate you having me on. And I, I hope this has been educational for everybody listening to. And, and if you're you're interested to learn more about Greenbelt and conservation easements, head to greenbeltmissouri.org to find our website. My contact information's there. Feel free to shoot me an email. And, and if you're making an end of your gift, I hope you'll consider supporting Greenbelt Land Trust too. We do a lot of good work. We're a well-run, financially responsible organization, but we can't continue to do what we do without, without donations. So, It is a humbling position to be in when you run a nonprofit and rely on the the generous benefit of others to support your mission and your organization. So I know you have a, you have an end of year fundraiser going right now. Why don't you tell people about that? Yeah, we're participating in a thing called Como Gives. It's run by the Community Foundation of Central Missouri. And so what they what it is is there are 114 nonprofits from throughout Central Missouri, and they all come together and do a sort of half cooperative, half competitive fundraiser. And so if you go to comogives.com, you'll see a leaderboard that has, I think we're, we're still in the top five. We were number three in the, among the 114 organizations. I like to brag a little about that while I have the opportunity. But, and you can really, it's like shopping at amazon.com, except it's donations. So it's a really good way. Sometimes I do all this shopping, you know, you spend the whole day stumbling from store to store trying to get all your Christmas shopping done. And, it's, I find it's a really satisfying offset to come home at the end of the day and you can knock out, you can make donations to, to 50 different organizations in one sitting with one swipe of the credit card. 
And everybody listening, don't think there's any amount of money that's too little. The website has a $10 minimum, so you got to give at least 10, but anything helps. And that's my point. This is the way the rubber meets the road. We enormously appreciate volunteers. And if you want to get engaged, please, please let me know. But but I hope you'll you'll consider us as part of your end of your giving too. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot. Everybody, thanks for listening. Check out Greenbelt Land Trust of Mid-Missouri.